This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. For devotees of Russian architecture, my guest today needs little introduction. Professor William Kraft Brumfield is the leading foreign expert in Russian architecture and the author of numerous books on the subject, including his latest, Journeys Through the Russian Empire, The Photographic Legacy of Sergei Prokudin Gorsky published by Duke University Press in 2020 and the subject of our discussion today. Professor Brumfield currently teaches at the Department of Germanic and Slavic Languages at Tulane and has garnered more academic awards and distinctions than we have time here to enumerate, but I will just mention one. In 2019, Professor Brumfield was awarded the Order of Friendship by President Vladimir Putin, the highest honor that can be conferred on a foreigner. I have really been looking forward to our discussion about his work and about journeys through the Russian Empire, and I'm delighted that it brings Professor Brumfield to the podcast today. Professor Brumfield, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I think it's fair to say that yours is a somewhat um, unusual academic career. You've managed to fuse a very successful uh, profession of teaching Slavic languages and Russian studies with a lifelong passion for Russian architecture, and the latter has involved a great deal of fieldwork. I would love us to begin by you taking us through your academic uh, career and and give us a kind of a sense of um, how you divide your time today. We started off, Mike, uh, you said you'd already been in touch with Russia uh, for much of the morning. So uh, give us a little snapshot of your career, if you would. Well, it's, it's, it's all very strange. Uh, there's a certain logic and there's a path and the study of Russian language and literature and history um, is absolutely essential. Uh, there's no question about that. And that was, that was a clear direction wasn't easy, but uh, my high school preparation in Latin prepared me for the uh, trauma of knowing that Russian has six cases uh, in the nouns, for example. Uh, so it was just the love for the literature that really started it all. Uh, but um, the camera, that's more difficult to uh, unravel. Uh, I was taking a few desultory photographs, but being in, in New Orleans, I think, is an underwriter. Tulane University. Uh, I, I fell in love with the city. Absolutely fell in love with New Orleans. Uh, that is so deeply a part of who I am, and not in the typical way that you might think. I don't go to. I, I don't know when I was last in the French Quarter. Probably a, a, at least a year ago. That's not the point. Uh, it's it's the, the aura of the city. I would uh, sometimes take a camera and go down and pick times when there would be no traffic, and suddenly. 
the, you begin to relate to the buildings. The buildings relate to history, and you can interpret them. And it gave me a, a sense of um, a meaningful encounter. And I got pleasure on it. I, I liked the way things line up and blend. Uh, but then uh, going over to Russia, my first summer of 1970, that too was something of an accident. I uh, went to the uh, Consumer Review magazine and said, well, what's a good camera to, to take along? It won't be too much of a problem. made a very good choice, light Konica C35. And uh, didn't think really much about it. I took some photographs and bought a lot of Soviet slides uh, for my uh, future courses. And they all turned purple within six. Oh, dear. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the, the Kodachrome, the images that I took, and there were only, I think, three rolls, uh, were studied. some of them are still being published today. Uh, how long is that? 50 years ago. Kodachrome is just a remarkable medium. Um, and it's uh, no one really uh, thinks much about it anymore. But that was the basis of it. Just something that clicked um, in, in more ways than one. No pun intended. Right, right. Uh, it's it's just I, I, things lined up. You had a center. The the eye told you what to do, what to do with the equipment. So that's the magic began there, uh, and, and there was just no doubt that this was something that had to be pursued, brought into my work as a Slavist. But how to do that? It took many more years. Uh, being at uh, an assistant professor at Harvard, I published a cover story on Harvard Magazine. In other words, there were people outside of the academic structure uh, who recognized uh, the gift and recognized my impulse. Then I got a contract with David Godin in Boston on the basis of that, uh, uh, that first article in Harvard Magazine. Totally unexpected. I have a rejection letter, and yet they called me back. David Godin, that magnificent press that was active in the uh, uh, 70s, particularly in the early 80s. We thought we would do a book for the Moscow Olympics. Moscow Olympics in 1980 happened without American participation. We said, okay, well, we'll just do a book on Russian market. There are so many twists and turns in this entire story, so many improbable um, uh, outcomes. And yet that first book, Golden Azure, which appeared all of 1983, laid the basis for my subsequent work, including another 40 books, many of them published in Russia. Uh, but the, the camera was essential to all of this. Without the camera, without the vision, and you know how literally I take that term, vision of Russian culture, of Russian heritage, of Russian history, uh, the, the camera was, uh, I wouldn't have done it without the camera. Very, very unpredictable, and I feel blessed that these things came together and sustained over so many years since. Well, I think the blessing has been for those of us who studied Russian architecture, because your books uh, really bring the subject to life in a very accessible way that some of the Russian publications don't manage to do for for Western uh, readership, I think. Yeah. Well, I should say, of course, I'm enormously indebted to Russian colleagues uh, who, from the, the very beginning, of course, having that cover article in St. Petersburg and Harvard Magazine helped, but they say, this, this, he may be crazy, 
but <laughs> let me give him a pass. And so that I was able to enter into the scholarly world of Russian architectural historians at the very top level. That's hard for me to explain. I, I think uh, perhaps uh, a certain amount of craziness helps. Um, if, if, if this guy is so uh, out there, then let's, uh, let's help. Let's give him shelter. And uh, I, I have to give enormous credit to Russian colleagues for taking me uh, under their care from uh, those. Uh, I could give you so many stories here. And I, uh, I, I don't know even where to begin. But I'll tell you one story in the summer of 1970, my first trip over there. We were there as language teachers at the Moscow State University. And there was a wonderful teacher there, Nina Balodin. Uh, they were just at absolutely the best. They made us feel at home. Remember, this is the, right in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, we just bombed the port at Haiphong. The Russian sailors had been killed. This was a very intense time. As I was from Berkeley. I saw that from another perspective. But anyway, they were so good and friendly, and uh, they just really put us through the drills. You know those Russian language drills. Um, and, <laughs> intonation and all of the rest of it. And then there was one, Nina would also type up lists of, she would say, well, I'm going to take a walking tour in Moscow. And she'd type up uh, little uh, copies of lists of churches. Remember the church, most of the churches were closed. And um, I said, meet at a certain time on a Saturday or Sunday. And sometimes I'd be the only person to show up. Oh, really? Wow. But we would still go. It didn't matter to a real teacher. It's that it's that contact with a person who's interested. Uh, and if it's one person, fine. If it's ten, uh, they'll still do their best. I owed a tremendous debt to her uh, for those first excursions with my little camera going around the Church of the Trinity in Nikitniki, which I'm sure you know there in Kitai Gorod, all of those places that just and, and she was there as a guide. It's so important to have a guide to a physical. Uh, and then you start exploring on your own. So that's one example from the very beginning. Without people like that, without Russian colleagues uh, who always met my interest, um, I, uh, I, I don't think my project would have uh, taken uh, the productive and that collaboration continues to today. You're still very involved with Russia, and you you spend a lot of time there. I think. Yes, right. As much time as uh, as I can. Uh, the fact that I haven't been able to past year has had a, a side benefit, and I, I've been able to catalog the backlog of images, thousands of images, for my collection at the National Gallery of Art. That is a, that is another remarkable story. The way the National Gallery brought me into their enormous uh, museum. Uh, that, that too is quite unexpected. We can perhaps talk about that a bit later. But all of this that I do in Russia, all of the photographs I take, have a structure that will preserve them. That too is, uh, you can be inspired by something, but how do you share that? I think you started our, our broadcast with, uh, with that notion of sharing. Um, and uh, the, the National Gallery has enabled that to really, uh, I think, uh, go forward into the generations after I'm no longer here. 
that sharing will continue. That's marvelous. And as will your latest book, um, Journeys Through the Russian Empire, in which you um, juxtapose your own photographs with the photographs of someone who lived about a century ago, um, the pioneering photographer, Sergei Prigozhin-Gorsky. And let's begin um, our discussion of the book. Um, For our listeners who don't know uh, Prigozhin-Gorsky, could you sort of sketch his bio? Um, In many ways, he's like yourself. His his journey takes a lot of twists and turns. That's right. That's right. He was uh, born into a family of gentry in central Russia, Vladimir province. Uh, in 1863, uh, and uh, developed fascination, had a good education, uh, technical education, developed fascination with chemistry and optics, uh, and uh, was very soon uh, conversant with advances in that field in Germany at the time. Uh, it, many people were trying to devise a way to uh, break the color spectrum uh, into usable segments that could be uh, could be printed. In other words, color photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and photography itself is really less than a century old uh, at that point. So dated to the 1820s. And so here at the beginning of the 20th century, there were, there were various competing methods for rendering an image through a machine in color. And Prigozhin Gorsky finally chose his method. And uh, not only did he perfect it, but he also decided this is a project. I am going to record the Russian Empire and all its diversity and bring back these images to the capitals, Moscow and St. Petersburg, show them to a public. So he didn't photograph Moscow and Petersburg, with very rare exceptions. He photographed the, the, the expanse of the Russian Empire, and he believed in that empire. He believed that Russia had a destiny. Uh, that would take it into Eurasia. We might come back to that because that proved to be, of course, uh, a very complicated uh, question. But so what? It launched him. <laughs> it launched right. him. And it took him to Central Asia, um, uh, the, the, the great monuments of Samarkand and Bukhara, for example. Uh, so that, and why? How did he get there? Because the Russians had taken this as part of the great game of imperial expansion. The British were in India, the Russians were in Central Asia, what we know as the great game. Uh, So they were there uh, primarily for cotton, just a a rich agricultural land to irrigate produce cotton for Russian uh, uh, textile factories. They were building railroads, pushing through, in other words, your classical colonial enterprise. Uh, But it was empire. And Prigozhin Gorsky followed that empire. Um, he only got as far as Western Siberia, but he did go into Central Asia, uh, as well as many parts in the Central and other uh, uh, Western areas of, of the empire, including areas that are now in Poland. Uh, so that for him, photography was a way to grasp a public's attention and say, "This is where you live. This is the country uh, in which." You have a, a part. You may live very remote, uh, remotely in St. Petersburg and uh, thousands of versts away. A verst is about a kilometer. Uh, you have this other part. It's all the same country. You see, photography was to be a unifying enterprise in his project. 
that was his vision. You, you bring this back to people and show them the treasures of their country, their cultural legacy. And uh, the, how his collection survived, uh, particularly after he left the country following the, the murder of Nicholas II and his family, uh, and how he was reunited with that, que- uh, that collection, you couldn't think this up. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> it's just too improbable. And the fact that uh, he, he died, by the way, in, in September of 1944 after the liberation of Paris. Uh, and then uh, uh, in 1948, Americans were sort of combing Europe at that time, trying to restore art to its rightful owners, but also looking for treasures that they could pick up for our own uh, powerhouse of knowledge, the Library of Congress. And someone at the Library of Congress bought Fakud and Gorsky's collection. How did he find out about it? Uh, there, there are various details here that are still rather murky. But it ended up the Library of Congress, of all places. Of all places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, uh, they asked me to get involved in it. So that, uh, but the, the point is, I had already photographed in the 15 or so years before I found out about those pieces. He did the same places he did. He and I mm-hmm. followed, as you pointed out, a similar logic. Uh, we wanted to record heritage and history uh, through uh, phot- photographs. Right, and could you could we just backtrack a minute? Because um, I want for for some of our listeners who aren't as um, technologically uh, focused, talk to me a little bit more about the color technology and the resulting photographs, which are really mesmerizing. Particularly, your book is, by the way, for listeners, absolutely beautiful. Um, it's a stunning. I don't even want to call it a coffee table book because it's just so, it's a gorgeous album um, of these wonderful photographs by Prokudin Gorski and yourself. And sometimes I have trouble deciding which is which um, when I'm turning the pages um, because the color is really vibrant. How did he achieve that? Um, and, and if you could also talk a little bit about how he was able to travel so far into the regions of the empire, because that, in the turn of the century, wasn't such an easy prospect, I don't think. Yes, well, it, it depends. This is a paradox. He's using advanced technology to record traditional culture, and he's getting there through advances in transportation, railroad mm-hmm. construction. Railroad construction. So some of his were river, river trips, uh, because his patron was the Ministry of uh, Transportation, but ultimately all of this was blessed by Nicholas II. He had a meeting with Nicholas in 1909 and showed the photographs. Nicholas himself was an enthusiastic amateur photographer, uh, so that uh, he had protection at the highest level, and he had letters allowing him access. And he had the means. In many of these trips, he had his own rail car uh, for the laboratory, which was needed to develop those uh, those, uh, rather cumbersome glass negatives. Now, about his method. Uh, it involved the variation of a camera de- uh, devised by a German inventor, Adolf Mitte, uh, and it involved taking three separate exposures of the same object. In other words, the, the glass plate, which would be chemically treated, was dropped down in a box camera it fell down, sort of a gravity feed, three times. And each time, uh, it passed in front of the lens, each drop. 
right? And you had an assistant who put a different filter in front of the image at each clunk of the exposure. Clunk, 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 right? The glass negative is falling down, it's descending in that box camera. So the camera has to be on an absolutely stable surface and it has to be pointed forward. You can't tilt it up, right? Otherwise, right. gravity won't work. And you have the, uh, the person changing the filter in front of it. It's a standard three color process. And what you have is, as a result are uh, blue or cyan, as it's called, yellow and magenta or red. Those are the uh, three products that you get. The filters are usually called green, magenta. Well, we're getting into optics here. Let's forget it. So you come out with uh, three colors. And you'll notice in the book, we decided to preserve all of Brokutin Gorski's image. You see the Brokutin Gorski photographs will have that uh, fringe. You'll see mm -hmm. a little red sticking out and blue sticking out. Those are the three exposures in his three-part glass negative. Uh, and and you, you combine them just in typical color printing to this day. Uh, that's that's, that's how, how you get a color image. You combine those three different levels. Well, his camera did that and is very cumbersome. Uh, and ultimately, color photography took an entirely different route, the so-called autochrome route. Which mm -hmm. the, the levels are embedded in an emulsion of film. Um, but his route gave that clarity that you, you talk about. It was cumbersome. Uh, it was restricted in what it could do. Uh, that's why he was always climbing up church bell towers. <laughs> uh, because that would give his lens the, the, the range that he wanted. Uh, many of those bell towers were destroyed during the Soviet period. So we have unique views in some of these uh, Russian towns, such as Suzdal or Smolensk. Uh, but nonetheless, I've been able to re reproduce some of them and often did so without even knowing that Brigudin Gorsky existed. So that's wow. the history of this whole and and this, to, yeah. to, to what you, you've said, it, this is, and I stand behind this statement, Jennifer, this is yeah. the most beautiful book I have ever seen in my life. All credit to the Duke design team, particularly to Matt Tausch, uh, they deserve unlimited praise, uh, particularly in putting Gorsky's photographs on one side of these large format glossy pages and mine on the other. It's just spectacular. I open the book and there's just this explosion of joy. Of, <laughs> of, <laughs> That's marvelous. I, I just cannot praise them enough. We often don't understand what goes into a book like this. And I have enormous respect for uh, the technical level and proficiency and professionalism that the Duke University Press brought to this book. I, I, I'm, I'm just going to say it is the most beautiful book I have ever seen. All right. Well, I, I would concur. I, I received my copy and, and spent a good three days just um, paging through it, even before I started reading the text, which is equally wonderful. Um, so uh, a big plug for the book to the yeah. listeners. Anybody interested in architecture, photography, Imperial Russia, it's all there. Or um, book for sure. design. Anybody interested <laughs> in book design? <laughs> For sure. Um, what what happened to the negative? Now, the negatives are glass slides, and I'm guessing they don't turn purple, um, yeah, yeah. No, like your original, the ones you've bought in Moscow. Yeah, um, yeah. 
How do they get out of Russia? Well, they were they were just shipped out by uh, the Library of Congress. Uh, mm. That was that was the simple part. It was uh, how did they get to Paris uh, to France? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's there's where we have many many mysteries. Uh, but getting them over to the states and in the Library of Congress, what they eventually did was made a copy negatives uh, of those glass plates, and the glass plates are in deep storage. No one uses those. Uh, it's the copy transparencies made from the glass negatives that have been used. Uh, I've organized the first exhibit at the Library of Congress in 1986. It's the first time these photographs had ever been exhibited because Prokuti Gorsky didn't print them. Uh, mm. he, he, uh, he arranged slideshows for hundreds of people. Yeah. Uh, in um, St. Petersburg, for example, even after the revolution, he was still having public slideshows in the Narodny Dom or the People's House uh, mm -hmm. in St. Petersburg, for example the largest auditorium in the city. Uh, so that um, we arranged the first exhibit of them on paper, a photographic paper, in 1986. Um, uh, it was really something of a problem because since he didn't print them, we didn't have anything to go on. The people mm. who uh, decided we're going to print them uh, had these negatives, right? But what are you, what's your color match? Mm. Have to have a color. And I, I read an article about the firm in Northern Virginia that printed them for that 80 photographs for that first exhibit that I. He said, if we got if we got the tree bark right, everything else would fall into place. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Oh my goodness! <laughs> what, what's what's what are the colors supposed to be? Because all you have are these enormous glass negatives with three separations. Right. Calibrate now with computer technology, uh, that miracle, uh, and uh, with the Library of Congress. Uh, computerize them, digitize them at the beginning of this century. Now they are available to public all over the world. You can go to the Library of Congress site and see not only uh, the combined image, the color image, but you can also see the, the uh, three color separations. It's all there on the right. Library of Congress site. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And am I right in thinking that um, there has been kind of a resurgence of interest in this collection inside Russia uh, today, my my husband works uh, worked for the um, Russian railways, and I remember one New Year's we got an enormous coffee table book. I, I have to say, not as nice as Journeys Through the Russian Empire, but quite nice and um, produced as as the sort of the VIP gift. Um, and that was the first time I had heard of Brukudin Gorsky, and I became quite fascinated by him. Um, but it, do you find that there's a lot of interest in his work in Russia today? Enormous, because the Library of Congress, and this is one of those noble things that the Library of Congress does, and it wasn't easy. There's a backstory here as well. Mm. The fact that they decided to digitize the Prokudin-Gorsky collection, uh, they weren't just sitting there with, with nothing to do. There were many competing projects. But uh, people, staff at the Library of Congress managed to push this one through. Let's digitize this Prokudin-Gorsky. 
uh, collection. There's already been a book that came out in the mid-1970s uh, by Robert Allshouse that had access to some of those images. And so, um, uh, and then my exhibit came along and because I was a specialist in, uh, not only in Russian history, but also in photography. So I arranged the exhibit and did the annotation because a lot of his uh, captions are misleading or mistaken. Um, uh, there are a lot of stories here uh, that we could explore, but uh, let's let's move ahead to to the result. I, so that we 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 had this position, and then the Library of Congress had a had a internal discussion: uh, should we digitize it, and should we spend our resources doing this? And they decided yes. The Library of Congress, James Billington, uh, whose memory I deeply revere, a specialist in Russian history, gave the final go ahead. And once it came out, once it was digitized, once it was on Library of Congress site, it was a, a revolution in Russia. Mm-hmm. Here they now had accessible, freely accessible, no fee needed, high <laughs> quality resolution images taken in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. And there were numerous projects, uh, professional and amateurish, uh, crowd or group type projects that people would contribute, site set up. Oh, it, it, it became an enormous public undertaking to assimilate uh, these uh, few thousand images of the Petersburg Institute. It's one of the best stories to come out of Russian and American cooperation uh, in our time. Uh, the, 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 the explosion of interest in enthusiasm, taking every Perkutingorsky image, people coming onto sites and saying, yes, my parents, my grandparents knew this, or coordinating them with satellite maps. Where exactly was he standing when he took this photograph? That level of detail, that enthusiasm, it's become a national project. Uh, Thanks to the Library of Congress for, for making that available. That's a fascinating story. And and I think that these are some, because so much was destroyed in the revolutions of 1917 and afterwards, that there is a sense of looking into a window of history, that there's an immediacy about the photographs. Um, you do feel that you're, you could reach in and touch um, the barks of the tree. And, and the people that he manages to photograph are looking back at you with just a, a an, an insane amount of Concentration. Yeah, um, because, because I find them hypnotic. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had to stay still because of the, <laughs> the explosion. And sometimes the, the 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 little the small children sometimes were impatient. <laughs> There's a there are a few uh, blurs. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right because they turned their head as the negative was dropping down. Uh, but that is really touches on one of the uh, the most uh, uh, gripping points in, in this project. Uh, I don't focus on the people, I focus on the architecture, but people appear in those photographs. Uh, Sometimes they're there deliberately at his request. Uh, And you wonder about the fate of those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's something that I raise in my conclusion to the book, which I hope everyone will will read and ponder. Uh, Because these are not just beautiful images of a past that that seems to have been retrieved magically. Uh, They also pose questions about what happened to Russia. Because when a decade of, of his taking these photographs, Russia was plunged into the, uh, the most horrifying chaos and bloodshed. Uh, 
not after the First World War and then the revolutions, but particularly the Civil War. And, and one wonders what happens. Now, as far as the architecture, yes, a lot of it was lost. But as my photographs show, a lot of it remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's also a rather startling um, uh, conclusion. A lot of it did survive. Uh, but the, the people and the fates of, uh, of uh, those buildings, let's say, many of which, for example, the monasteries were used as prisons uh, during the Soviet period. The, the monastery on the front of the book, the front jacket of the book, was used as a prison, terrible prison by the NKVD uh, during the 1930s. Um, and that's, that's a part of Russia's history. So these photographs should also, I would hope, stimulate us to think about what Russia went through. Uh, if his photographs and mine are bookends, what happened during the long 20th century in Russia? I think the photographs, that's why the historical context that I give in uh, my book uh, is um, uh, a guide to some of the uh, twists and turns that architecture represents. What survived? What hasn't? Uh, and uh, we, we have to ponder what happened to the people. Right. I, I think it's just uh, an enormous number of very serious questions that uh, make us ponder the, the history of Russia in general. It has not been an easy path, as you know. Right. The century has been quite cruel. Um, but one question I would like to, to expand on uh, in in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, you pose an intriguing question. You ask yourself and, and readers if Prokudin Gorsky had any kind of sense that he was recording something that would soon disappear. And you conclude that this is probably unlikely. Um, but you say that there are intersecting lines that intrigue on a subjective level. And when I read that, I sort of um, put a sticky in it because I... I I haven't actually highlighted anything in the book. It's too beautiful. Um, and, I, and I wondered if you might expand on that idea uh, because it really, it, it, it really leapt off the page when I read it first and I have thought a lot about it since. Well, I, he was aware, of course, of the fractures in Russian society before the revolution, before the First World War. I mean, he, he lived in St. Petersburg. There were terrorist attacks, one of whom, uh, one of which... Uh, killed uh, his would-be patron, uh, Stalipin. Um, uh, he, he certainly knew about this, and, and yet it's clear, I think all evidence suggests that uh, as a well-educated, loyal Russian citizen, uh, he believed in, in that empire. Uh, so uh, there must have been conflicting impulses in, in a subconscious way. Uh, there, there is so much that enters the realm of the fantastic in his collection and his life story and uh, the way that my own life intersected with it. That, uh, I don't find any of this improbable. He might have sensed that this has to be preserved. Or if, even without the revolutionary changes, technology itself, urbanization, all of these things are changing Russia. We look at something that seems to be a timeless uh, landscape of old Russia when we see some of these churches uh, or places such as Suzdal, Smolensk. Uh, and yet they were changing radically in Russia's uh, economic uh, and technological development. Uh, so there's this strange disjuncture. Um, and different people looking at Prugorsky's uh, work today 
will will decide which part of it they want to see. Uh, mm. Is it Russia we have lost? Uh, who's we and what have we lost? But still, you, you, there's this notion, is it an exercise in nostalgia? Uh, but it can also be read as an exercise of, of a society and a Going, undergoing a very difficult transformation. For example, as I point out in the book, the interiors uh, of the uh, uh, Dormition Cathedral in Smolensk, uh, that superb structure that survived so many wars and occupations. Um, and uh, you'll see, if you look carefully at the Prokudin-Gorsky photograph, there is a Black Hundreds banner standing next to the most sacred icon in that cathedral. Now, that's the detail that I, as a photographer and historian, picked out. Um, you can actually see the black banner and say, Sayus Ruskova Naroda. Well, black hundreds for the audience uh, that doesn't uh, perhaps know about that episode in Russian history were arch reactionary um, uh, uh, proponents of uh, the old monarchist order. Uh, not uh, very pleasant people, in my opinion. <laughs> And uh, yet they claimed a part of the church's attention. Um, and these are, these are difficult, uh, difficult questions and they have to be brought out. So the fractures are there. He knew about them. And at the same time, um, the, the, the empire was a grand project that matched the other great powers of the world. So it seemed. Now, I want to also go to the Central Asian part. Chapter mm-hmm. journey, 7 longest in the book, that this is the first time my Central Asian work uh, has been published in um, a major mm. form. Yes, right. I, well, I'm a specialist in Russian architecture, right? Um, I was there, again, an improbable adventure, in May of 1972. Wow. On a trip arranged by Leningrad State University at the end of my uh, dissertation research there. They offered us this opportunity to go to Central Asia. All of my uh, American friends uh, in Leningrad were busy working in the library, finishing their last uh, research project. Uh, I had already taken care of that, and uh, I I joined up. The only American in this small group of 10 people. And it was just, it was like the journey of a lifetime to go to Central Asia, Samarkand and Bukharan, and see all of that. How could you not have? How could you not have done this? Anyway, that's and I, it, and I was there and was photographing these extraordinary monuments of Islamic architecture that Prigozhin Gorsky had seen, and uh, I saw them pretty much in the same form that he saw them. But Jennifer, this is the point. In 1916, during the, the war, the the Russian army tried to draft. A large part of that population of uh, these Uzbeks, Kazakhs, and so forth uh, into the army uh, as laborers. There was an explosion of violence, a rebellion against that, that led to the deaths of tens of thousands, perhaps over a hundred thousand. Oh dear. So, Perkutin Gorsky had he'd been there photographing this area four years earlier, five years earlier. Um, so that the empire had the seeds of its own dissolution. He, however, had been there, photographed uh, some of the cotton uh, plantations, we'll call them, the irrigation works. That was all progress, as they saw it. You're, you're making the desert bloom, right? 
But beneath that, there are these explosive uh, ethnic uh, expectations and conflicts that would tear the region apart. The Soviet Union came in and later uh, reintegrated these areas, and now they're all independent countries, as you know. There are so many questions behind recruiting Gorsky's photographs. Uh, they would require separate books. But I just want you to know that there is a there is a tragic um, a sense hanging over all of, uh, of his work. I think we have to be cognizant of that, of what happened to the people and the places that he photographed. They're not just there uh, to be enjoyed as an exercise in nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that we need to think about the saga that Russia went through in the 20th century and the miracle that these photographs uh, exist, that they even yeah. survive. And is that part of what drives you to preserve your own photographs? Absolutely. And I think what I do, I've, I've been uh, fortunate from the very beginning before I had any idea of where this could lead, Jennifer, of, of keeping a log, a daily log. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, when I'm in Russia, that allows me to, to date uh, all of these tens of thousands of photographs in my collection. And that means they're documents from a historical point of view. You know mm -hmm. that they were made. A photograph, as I tell my students, is a time machine. It can take us back, but it can also stimulate our thoughts what happened after the photograph was taken. So you see that sliding along a temporal scale, the photograph allows you, if you know when it was taken. This is how it looked at a certain moment in time. Time and space come together in a photographic image if it's properly documented. So the National Gallery of Art has provided a structure in which what I know can be conveyed to generation hence. This photograph, this cathedral, looked this way on January the 13th, uh, 1998, for example. Um, this is where it was. And there's many of these buildings change in their appearance. They changed since recruiting Gorsky. Architectural historians will recognize these details. So, so having this notion of fixing something in time and space is essential to his project and to mine. Right. This I'm, I'm mind reeling here, and I, I think our listeners are probably thinking rather guiltily about their own maybe messier photo archives. Um, so it's a it's a lesson you're providing a PSA to everybody to get your photographs in order. Um, but let me ask you, Prokhodin Gorsky's time traveling across the Russian Empire is basically encompasses seven years, from 1909 to about 1915, 1916. Well, actually, let me make a small emendation there. He actually yes. began in, in 1903. Oh, okay. Uh, the audience with Nicholas occurred in 1909, but he right. was already traveling extensively before uh, 1909. Uh, you had to have something to show. Uh, right. You had to have something to show the Tsar. <laughs> and didn't he? Didn't he go out and photograph the Russo-Japanese War or the no, area no, around? No. no? no what, what he did, there was some confusion about that. But in fact, and I've seen that book. He was responsible for producing a large illustrated ah. book on the Russo-Japanese War. 
he didn't go there. Uh, and uh, he, there's a copy of this book. It's an enormous book in the Library of Congress. The photographs are very uninteresting. They're in black mm. and uh, often they'll show fields littered with uh, what turn out to be corpses. A very, very gruesome book. Uh, and it's, uh, he was just responsible for producing the book. Because, you know, he had to make a living. Uh, mm. He wasn't just uh, there taking photographs. He also had a printing, publishing, a commercial firm. Uh, and uh, they printed guidebooks, for example, anything with illustrations in it. So that's the story of that book on the Russo-Japanese. I war. see. Yeah. But he what I what I wanted to get get into was the fact that okay, he's he's operating, um, let's say, twenty years. Um, your own time has been. You're almost at five decades now. Um, and we uh, we talked earlier about whether Prokhodin Gorsky understood that the empire was about to collapse. You started doing this in the seventies, and I wonder if you had then any sense that the Soviet Union might be about to collapse, or if you thought it was as permanent as as anything else. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly had no premonition of uh, the of the, the collapse, uh, and I was just fascinated by all of it. Went to the Baltic countries for the first time, also in the beginning of 1972. Any trip that was arranged, I took uh, because I, I've just always been interested in this intersection of, 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 of place, of landscape, and history. Uh, it, it says so much, uh, and, and the camera gave me a way to retain that. Um, by the way, I never take a camera when I go to places like France or Germany or England. The photography is boring work. It's hard. It is hard. Uh, yes. Yeah. If, 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 if you don't need to do it, and of course there are millions of photographs of uh, the cathedrals in Western Europe, uh, but but in 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 Russia and the Soviet Union, in other words, the empire, uh, uh, I, I I felt that, that it was all interesting, and, and it was so different, uh, as you know, Tallinn, Estonia, mm-hmm. and, and Samarkand. <laughs> Uzbekistan. <laughs> it's, it's just, I couldn't get enough of it. So I guess that's the short answer to your question. If it, if it was there in the territory of the Soviet Union, I could always justify it by saying, this is a part of history that I'm studying. But to t- be frank with you, I just loved it. I just liked it. Mm. I just liked going and seeing places. Well, your your book has a structure that I think is is influenced by your your travels because you it's kind of a um, logarithmic spiral like a like a nautilus shell. You begin at the sort of historic heartland, and then in ever expanding circles, you work outwards to the Central Asia. But in the middle, we have the Urals and Siberia, the Volga River lands, and it, and then there's the um, the very moving photographs of the Solovetsky Islands. And would you spend a little bit of time, Professor Brumfield, just talking about each of those, those trips that you took and, and what you think is the, the essence of those places? Yeah, well, the, the, the eight journeys that make up the book are composites. And we have maps mm-hmm. at the beginning of each one, so you can see there. In other words, there's several journeys that I took, and in some cases, Gorski took, in order to create that journey uh, within the book. So we're, what we're doing is 
using. We're splicing trips together uh, that make it uh, accessible to the reader in geographical terms so that we're not pushing and pulling the reader all over this vast Eurasian space. We're concentrating uh, on particular regions. And when in that, you have his, Trudengorsky's trips and my trips uh, coming together as a comprehensible entity. Um, and uh, it's the, the, the final trip that he took, went up to the Russian North, Solovetsky others, in 1960, in the midst of this horrible war, uh, the Russians were building a railroad up to Mormonsk. Um, there was no railroad up there. It was just a forest, what is now a Karelia. And uh, going up there to uh, take Allied war material, which was desperately needed on the Eastern Front. The Allies wanted to keep Russia in the war. The war had not gone well for Russia. Uh, not that it had gone much better on the Western Front, but the Russians were reeling. They were being pushed back. Uh, and uh, the, the Allies, particularly the British, were putting war material on up there, the closest place they could get to, which was a new town called Mormonsk. Uh, and then you had to get it down to the front, to the center of the country. So they were building a railroad there. He was there to photograph the construction of that railroad. And as a side trip, he took the boat over to the Solovetsky Islands. Again, you have this moment in time that he fixed going around the walls of this enormous structure, one of the most remarkable in Russia. And within five years, Jennifer, a mm. half a decade, it would be turned into the center of a budding concentration camp empire about which Solzhenitsyn wrote about in his Archipelago Gula. Five years. So Kudengorsky is there photographing. Five years later, it becomes a prison camp. That would be the prototype for Gulag, the state uh, camp system. Uh, you, you just sort of shudder when you think about it. Yes. Yes, it's very harrowing. Yeah. And, and then I'm there again, just as these buildings are being cleaned and refurbished. I was there at the perfect time, 1998-1999. Most of the scaffolding had come down. Some of it has since gone back up. Um, but I was, it was just be there that far north uh, in the summer. Uh, and I was there in late June, both uh, 1988. The quality of the light, particularly mm. in, around 11 o'clock in the evening before mid, is just, just something that is the, the only thing that brings you back to reality. You know what brings you back to reality? The humming of mosquitoes. <laughs> That's true. You cannot. <laughs> You've got to have a defense against them, or they literally will 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 drive you insane. Insane. That's true. The the all the Volga river cruises that I've been on that has been the um, that has been the real scourge of of trying to enjoy yourself in oh, that part of the world. Oh, Jennifer, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing. Okay. <laughs> you have to be in a swarm in the north of uh, Russia uh, or or Finland for that matter. It's uh, people learn how to cope. Oh, it's dreadful. It's terrible, yeah. <laughs> You've gone through a lot to get these photographs. And, and as I was reading your um, your book, I I was intrigued by the ju juxtaposition. Here you have Prokudin Gorsky, who has this imperial patron, Nicholas II, who's a passionate shutterbug himself, and who gives him the laissez-passer. He can go anywhere in the empire and also 
uh, he's given a sort of blanket precause or order that that every civil servant must render aid if Prokhodin Gorsky yeah. needs it. Um, and the Ministry of Transport is putting all these things at his disposal, customized Pullman cars, river ships. Did you ever feel a little jealous of Prokhodin Gorsky's um, setup? No, not not really. Uh, it was really. a customized rail car, not Pullman car, but rail car. That's right, rail it's car. It's a slight difference. But his, uh, and he often had his, at least one his assistants with him, including one of his sons. Uh, so it, it, it's something like a family venture as well. It's really lovely to, to, to see that Prokhodin Gorsky uh, arranged his life to accommodate these, these travels. But as for feeling um, envious, no. I no. had so many. I, mean, I can't tell you how much I owe the uh, drivers of Russia. Oh. I, 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 never, I, I never drive a <laughs> No one ever except Professor Brumfield. <laughs> right, right, right. They, they have just worked miracles. Getting me over the terrain, um, and and ultimately see. Now, unlike Prokhodin Gorsky, I didn't have to follow the rail and uh, waterways. Right. I, I, I really went out into the deep territory, uh, and uh, there you need four wheel vehicles. You need uh, Russian experience, and the more extreme the conditions, the more fascinating the, the visual material. Um, in so many cases, Sometimes that's certainly true. The winter cold. You know, just very few of his photographs. In fact, I don't think any in the book are taken in the winter, mm. and uh, because it was technically, it, it just was very difficult for that box camera to operate in anything other than normal uh, temperate conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, where I found the winter sometimes gives the, the most fascinating results. To take a photograph in a of a medieval cathedral in the swirling snow. I mean, what could be more fascinating than that? Um, and uh, so that I've just been enormously grateful to the people who, again, have maybe seen that insane look in my eyes and said, all right, uh, we'll, we'll take him there. Uh, and that's uh, particularly in the Russian north, but not all. Mm. The Urals, all of these other places. Uh, there are photographs you see in that book. I think you can understand this that are very hard to get to in many places. Uh, I'm the only American who's ever been there, uh, particularly in some of those Urals towns, which are strict, strictly speaking off limits. I wasn't supposed to be in some of those places. But mm -hmm. if, you have, if you have local patrons, local historians, local preservationists, they can, uh, they can get you through. Um, well, and it sounds like you have a, a Rolodex that would be the envy of any adventure photographer. Yeah, and it's, I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you one uh, question that's a bit cheeky, and so I apologize in advance. But as we record this on January 27th, um, Russian architecture has been in the news in the last week um, in the form of um, Putin's supposed alleged palace on the Black Sea coast. Um, I think Alexei Navalny's uh, explosive video is now reaching almost 100 million views on YouTube. Um, and I think the general feeling is that this is quite a garish and horrific um, architectural uh, situation, if, if indeed, you know, the video is to be believed. 
what were your thoughts when you heard uh, heard about that and and how do you feel it it fits into the history of Russian architecture? Well, I've uh, I've, I've heard about this uh, long before now. I mean, there there've been uh, rumors about uh, this setting uh, for at least a half a dozen years. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I think what I've seen of new Russian um, mansions and so forth. I'm, I'm not saying anything about what the object you're, you're speaking about, but basically the taste is terrible. I mean, it's just awful. And you compare that with what was being built at the beginning of the 20th century for Russians, industrial magnates uh, or the imperial estates on the Black Sea coast, uh, many of which were Gorsky photographs. And, and, and they're, they're beautiful. They are. Uh, particularly, the, for example, in the Crimea, the imperial palaces. Um, and Livadia and so forth uh, that Nicholas II built. Uh, they, they are very, very impressive uh, as architecture. So I don't know what happened uh, to, <laughs> to base the taste so much during that period. Uh, you know, but uh, I've, I've seen very, very little in these garish, nouveau riche mansions uh, to attract any sort of positive attention. Which is not to say that they're not good architects. And some of them are good. No, no, that's true. Are, yeah, are, they're very are, good architects. Yeah, and, and building uh, some, some, some interesting uh, houses. Some of them, the simpler and more natural they are, the better. Mm. But uh, the uh, money uh, often uh, spoils things. It can enable, but it can often um, degrade. Have I expressed that succinctly? I think you um, expressed that very succinctly, and I think that your book would be um, an excellent addition to any architect's uh, library working in Russia today, (laughs) Uh, because you have captured some of the more stunning aspects of Russian architecture throughout your career, and and this book kind of brings it all together into one glorious journey through a Russian empire. Um, Yes, and and I think it's perfectly suitable as a VIP gift. Absolutely. I, I have no problems with any sort of audience looking at this book because I think we all stand to gain from it. Uh, well, I'd like to congratulate you on it because it's it's the it's just brings so many of the threads of your work together. Um, it, it, there's history, there's literature, language, and and just the stunning photographs um, and the tale of two photographers um, charting the Russian Empire. Well, so well thank congratulations. You. Well, thank you. And as, as we started our conversation, sharing this is so important. Absolutely. And, uh, thank you. I'm very grateful to you for allowing me to share my experiences. Well, th- just share a little bit more um, before we, we close and, and let us know what's uh, on the horizon for you. I, I'm sure you're as anxious to get back overseas as I am. Uh, well, uh, there are various projects. Uh, I uh, some of which involve photo doc- photographic documentation, places that I want to return to, frescoes I want to photograph again after 30 years. Um, and uh, there are a couple of books in the works. But I'm also at this point in my life, and I'm 76 years old, thank God I uh, still feel fit and ready to go out into the field. But you know, there's an American side of my work that very few people know about. Mm. Photographs that I took in the late 70s when I was an assistant professor at Harvard. Uh, and I uh, 
don't want to spend too much time talking about that now, but the Russians, God bless them, um, are, have already published some of my American photographs. It's a totally different side uh, of my Interesting. photographer. It's, it's not the documentary uh, aspect that you see in my Russian work. Um, and stay tuned for that. Oh, but, fantastic. That's something but, to look forward to. But then, and the Russians have picked up on this. So I, I think this intersection between who I am and as an American and, and, and what I do in Russia uh, intersects in sometimes very mysterious and unexpected ways. Uh, it's not just about prepping me to go to Russia and pursue this grand dream, this project. Mm-hmm. Um, who I am as an, Amer- as an American uh, is also a part of, uh, of what I do in Russia. And I, mm. I, look forward, I, will, I look forward to bringing that to the public and exploring it. So that's something uh, else that maybe we can talk about on another occasion. Well, I hope you, I was just about to say, I hope you will come back uh, and talk with us about it. And where can people find out more about your work? uh, Journeys Through the Russian Empire is uh, available wherever great books are sold. Um, And where can our listeners learn more about you? I think there's a good Wikipedia article, uh, Mm -hmm. version. there's an English version, uh, and that, that has some of the basic uh, information, uh, links to the books and uh, the Amazon site. Uh, it's, uh, people will find uh, will find out. But I would say that the, the uh, Wikipedia article is a good place to start. Well, I would agree, and I, I will stick that in the show notes. Um, that's about all we have time for today. But Professor Brumfield, it has been a real pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I will be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Until then, thank you so much for listening.